Welcome back to our third panel. I'm Walter Olson from the Cato Institute and uh, Cato Institute Constitution Day 2019 continues with our panel on property rights, antitrust, and the census. Now, half of you are thinking that this means it's a miscellaneous panel for things that don't fit into a Bill of Rights um, or uh, a government st a constitutional structure uh, pattern that easily. And the other half of you are wondering how we will manage to tie together property rights, antitrust, and the census. And I'm going to let you use your imaginations as we continue as to what hypothetical case uh, would, would bring those three together. We're going to start out with antitrust, a uh, topic of an excellent article in the new Cato Supreme Court review by Bruce Kobayashi and Joshua Wright. Uh, because antitrust is first in the alphabet, and so is Apple, and so is App. Um, and <clears throat> Professor Joshua Wright is University Professor of Law at George Mason's Antonin Scalia Law School. Uh, he also has a courtesy appointment in the university's Department of Economics because he's well known for his economics work. Uh, previously, he was a member of the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, he also serves as executive director of the Global Antitrust Institute. And he has uh, won the Federalist Society's Paul Bator Award, uh, awarded for excellence in law teaching. Professor Wright. Thank you, Walter, and uh, thanks to the Cato Institute for having me, and uh, Talia Shapiro for the invitation. Um, I've been at uh, Scalia Law School now for 15 years, and uh, I've, I've told Ilya this story before. Maybe the greatest embarrassment of my career was a constitutional uh, day invite early in my career to discuss uh, Illinois Tool Works, and I, I screwed up the date on my calendar, and uh, I was a no-show. And uh, Ilya has punished me and sent me out into purgatory for 14 years, and now I am back. Um, and putting economics in graphs in the Cato Supreme Court review, um, may, maybe much to others' chagrin. Uh, but it'll be another 14. Years. It'll be another 14. <laughs> and, uh, you know, earn it, earn it the hard way. So uh, thanks again uh, for having me. I'm going to talk about uh, the Supreme Court's 5-4 to four decision in Apple versus Pepper. Um, and uh, to give you the, the punchline in advance, uh, it is a relatively narrow decision. The antitrust community was sort of up and excited about what might happen in Apple versus Pepper and some of the broader issues raised, in particular about uh, something called the indirect purchaser rule uh, in, in antitrust. Uh, also, Apple versus Pepper, Apple unsurprisingly, um, uh, the defendant in a consumer class action to do uh, with, with iPhones and the App Store, and particularly the 30% the uh, commission sort of ad valorem rate structure that Apple uses. Uh, app developers set the, the, the price, and Apple takes 30% home. So sort of a, a class of iPhone owners uh, su suing Apple. And it comes on the heels of the Supreme Court's decision in Ohio versus American Express, uh, a, a decision with broad implications for how the Sherman Act will be uh, applied in the instance of uh, tech platforms. So uh, all of the rage to talk about these days, presidential candidates everywhere talking about the application of antitrust uh, or things that look like antitrust uh, to, to tech platforms. And so a lot of the antitrust discussion around what might happen in Apple versus Pepper uh, surrounded the notion um, that this case, too, might uh, implicate who can sue those platforms and under uh, what conditions. Uh, 
the case is about the indirect purchaser rule, so maybe I'll start, uh, I'll start there um, for, uh, on the presumption that most of you are not, uh, don't wake up thinking about antitrust law. Uh, like I do. So, uh, the true story, the indirect purchaser rule uh, is a rule in antitrust that developed through, uh, it's really sort of a two cases, it's Illinois Brick uh, and, and Hanover Shoe, and combined the cases dealt with what's antitrust law going to do in an instance where uh, the allegation is that uh, Coca-Cola and Pepsi collude, they sell to the retailer for a higher price and the retailer sells to the ultimate consumer for uh, some fraction of that upcharge. Right, uh, and so Hanover Shoe uh, handles the defensive side of that equation. So it, it forbids what's called the pass-on defense. Yes, I did it, but the other guy paid for it because I passed on the upcharge. Okay, uh, so Hanover Shoe says no defensive use of pass-on theories, and Illinois Brick is the the sort of standing side of that. It says uh, potential plaintiffs cannot bring claims based upon passed-on damages. That is. Under the antitrust laws, direct purchasers can sue. So in my Coke and Pepsi example, uh, my supermarkets who sort of directly buy the Coca-Cola or the Pepsi, the soda with the overcharge, they can sue. The Supreme Court comes along and says the indirect purchasers, uh, who will in fact pay a higher price, uh, the indirect purchasers cannot sue under the federal antitrust laws. Okay? Um, why do they do that? Uh, there's a hodgepodge of reasons given uh, in the collection of opinions, but the basic idea is one about making the operation of the, it's a pragmatic sort of deal, making the operation of the federal antitrust laws uh, more efficient, optimizing deterrence, concentrating collection in a party to give them a strong incentive to identify and then deter anti-competitive behavior. Illinois Brick has sort of stood for a long time, uh, limiting the ability of indirect purchasers to sue under the federal antitrust laws. Um, the notion, the sort of purpose of Illinois Brick uh, undermines somewhat. Uh, states come along, uh, there's 53, don't ask me why, state, uh, state antitrust laws. Uh, and under the state antitrust laws, uh, lots of states pass Illinois Brick repealers, so states are having indirect purchaser actions sort of uh, everywhere. The underlying dispute here is iPhone users purchase uh, apps from the App Store, not surprisingly, uh, and the suit begins when uh, four iPhone owners sue Apple, alleging that Apple unlawfully monopolized uh, its iPhone apps aftermarket. So uh, the plaintiffs allege Apple locks in the iPhone users to the app market. You can't buy apps that Apple doesn't approve inside uh, that App Store, and specifically alleges uh, sort of quite plainly, the way Apple operates, not just its app store, but just about everything else, is through this uh, ad valorem rate structure. It says, uh, we Apple are not going to set the price, you app developer will set the price, we'll take 30% of your sales when you're done, thank you. Okay? Uh, this is sort of Apple's business model on almost everything uh, it does. And so the allegation is that 30% is uh, sort of pure profit to Apple, uh, and the consumers sue uh, directly. And the question is, uh, are, they, are they a proper plaintiff? Do they have standing to sue Apple? Are they direct or indirect? You can, uh, uh, without much uh, requirement of creativity on your part, imagine uh, what the arguments here are for each of the sides. Uh, iPhone says, I deal with Apple. Of course, I direct pur uh, I'm purchasing directly from Apple. Um, Apple's defense joined, interestingly, uh, the same argument by uh, the Department of Justice, uh, uh, who 
in the petition for cert made the following argument, said uh, we should really be looking at who sets the price. In this case, the app developers set the price. Uh, Apple might be facilitating the transaction like we think of a platform doing, uh, but it's really between uh, the app developer and the consumer. Therefore, the consumers are not the proper plaintiff. Uh, you should see there the connection to the other platform cases, right? So when can a consumer sue uh, Uber versus it has to sue the driver? Right. Uh, so in those platform contexts, sort of what uh, antitrust exposure are we going to assign uh, to what we might think about as an intermediary? So district court grants Apple's motion to dismiss, uh, holding that iPhone owners are indirect purchasers and thus not proper plaintiffs. Uh, the Ninth Circuit reverses, uh, saying uh, to the contrary, uh, plaintiffs were direct purchasers uh, because they purchased apps directly from um, Apple via the App Store takes us to the Supreme Court. Um, again, lots of discussion in uh, the antitrust community ex about exactly what the cert grant meant. Uh, perhaps the court would uh, overturn Illinois BRIC. There's been a lot of discussion in the antitrust community about um, sort of recall the, the function of that Illinois BRIC Hanover shoe uh, set of doctrines underlying the indirect purchaser rule is to make the antitrust laws uh, better as a deterrent to anti-competitive behavior. Um, how well is that working, subject to lots of debate between, between the antitrust agencies, also uh, between uh, antitrust scholars and economists. Uh, so lots of talk about whether the court would take on uh, any of those issues or alter the ways in which we generally think about the antitrust laws being applied uh, to platforms. Uh, I will uh, not sort of hide the ball here. They don't do any of that. Uh, they don't do uh, any of that at all. And instead, what we get is uh, an opinion that uh, narrowly on 5-4 grounds, we'll talk a little bit about the analysis in each, and I think um, what is happening next sort of narrowly holds in a 5-4 opinion authored by Justice Kavanaugh and joined by the four Democratic justices uh, that indeed the iPhone owners are proper plaintiffs. Um, some commonalities in the opinions, um, the majority in... in <laughs> Dissent each lay the blame at their colleagues for elevating form over substance, to want, to want to happen in these sorts of cases. Uh, and also, uh, each claims this is a, uh, their result is uh, the required and rather uh, straightforward application of the language of Section 4 of the Clayton Act. So the majority opinion, again, uh, authored by Justice Kavanaugh and joined uh, by, by the four Democratic justices, uh, rejects this who sets the price argument uh, made both by Apple and endorsed by uh, the Department of Justice uh, and interprets instead the Illinois brick part of the indirect purchaser rule as a rule that, quote, um, prohibits claims from consumers who are two or more steps removed from the antitrust uh, violator in the distribution chain, looks at the uh, what it describes as the economic reality of the transaction between the iPhone users and the App Store and says uh, there is no intermediary here. The app developer is not intermediating that transaction. And so looks to us like uh, the iPhone user is a direct purchaser uh, from Apple. Uh, interestingly, and uh, there's a section in the back of the paper, the uh, the uh, alleged section with the graphs and the, the and things you may want to avert your eyes if you do not recall intermediate microeconomics uh, from, from college. Um, but Justice Kavanaugh offers an example of uh, what economists call this sort of 30% commission and ad valorem, right? It's a, if a tax crowd, you will, you will sort of get what this is. So it's an ad valorem rate as opposed to sort of a standard markup, right? We, 
sell the product for $6, we mark it up four, and the retail price is 10, sort of a standard markup versus an ad valorem rate. And Justice Kavanaugh whips through an example and says, you know, ta-da, these are the same thing. All right, nothing up my sleeves, it's the same exact thing. These are, uh, get you the same result in economic substance, and so wouldn't it be a shame if we treated the two situations differently uh, as a matter of law, and in, in certainly with respect to who is a, a proper plaintiff. Uh, and based on that equivalence premise, uh, Justice Kavanaugh rejects Apple's argument that who sets the price uh, matters and says uh, Illinois brick favors giving the right to sue to the owners. Uh, Justice Gorsuch's dissent um, does uh, the opposite, says uh, <coughs> endorses this uh, who sets the price theory, says uh, Illinois brick um, sort of reads in uh, notions of proximate causation uh, into its logic already, uh, worries about uh, all of the woes that will happen to undermining the basis of Illinois brick um, in the future if we're going to allow consumers to sue and not just uh, the direct purchases, uh, characterizes the majority uh, also sort of points back a finger uh, about elevating form over substance and suggests it would be quite easy for Apple to arbitrage its way around um, the majority rule. Let me close with what I think are uh, a couple of interesting things uh, to do with uh, the opinion. The first is sort of back half of uh, the paper that is in uh, the review is about what happens next. So the case comes on remand and uh, now that the iPhone owners are identified as a proper plaintiff, um, uh, sort of one of the big uh, areas of hand-wringing around this indirect purchaser rule, uh, why we maybe only want direct purchasers to sue, is this idea of deciding uh, how much got passed on to the indirect guys. Right? So there's an upcharge to the supermarket who passes some on to the consumer. And one of the big reasons we don't let the consumer sue is identifying uh, the incidents for, for, for those who are, uh, uh, think about tax. So there's a basic tax incidents question about who pays that overcharge and how it's attributed between the supermarkets, the intermediary, and the consumer. Turns out in economics to be really hard to do. Right, uh, was really, really hard to do at the time of Hanover Shoe and Illinois Brick. Uh, there are economists who work on this in industrial organization all of the time. Um, and in some areas where we can get lots of data, it's really easy, but at a general matter, uh, this is very difficult. Both, uh, both opinions talk about the complexity of this sort of analysis um, being something to worry about. Uh, and indeed, that's a big part of the rationale uh, for the indirect purchaser rule. Uh, and generally, uh, is absolutely right. It is, uh, you know, fast forward 30 years from Illinois brick, this still remains um, uh, one of the more difficult things to do uh, as a practical matter within antitrust economics. Uh, the back half of our paper says, uh, turns out that in uh, the specific structure in Apple versus Pepper, this ad valorem rate, this is the one really easy result in all of tax incidents, right? And the purpose of the ad valorem rate is that uh, pass-through is zero, right? When you structure, the whole point of using an ad valorem rate is it doesn't affect the optimal price set by the app developer. What I want to do, if I, from an economic perspective, if I've got two guys who have the ability to set the price and a little bit of market power, Apple definitely has some, uh, and some of the app developers too, but if that's a problem I'm worried about in economics, if both guys mark up, I end up with a price that's too high and profits that aren't maximized, that is bad. So maybe if I'm Apple in that case, the reason I want the 30% um, 
is not out of the goodness of my heart, because I, but, because I make more money, right? Output's higher, everybody sort of does better off. This is maybe the one easy result in tax incidents uh, and, and pass-through, and it applies here, right? And so one implication, and we talk about this analysis in the paper, is uh, that it'd be very difficult, if not impossible, for the class of plaintiffs to show harm on, on remand, now identified as proper plaintiffs. Um, two other things uh, that I will close on in 10 seconds is um, five seconds per. One is um, lots of criticism that the decision doesn't grapple with the court's earlier decision in Amex about how to treat platforms. Um, I don't, don't think much to see there. This case was at a pleading stage. The majority goes out of its way to say, Lots of interesting issues there. We're not going to touch them on purpose. Uh, last thing is four cases to do with this ad valorem rate. There happens to be one really big one uh, followed, uh, filed by the FTC in the Northern District of California, the FTC's case against Qualcomm, which is now on appeal in front of the same Ninth Circuit, in which case the basis of the claim is that Qualcomm also uses this ad valorem rate structure. Um, and so I think in terms of analysis, um, what our analysis says has obviously implications for the um, likelihood that there's no actual uh, harm there, made interesting in part by the fact that my co-author is the um, economics director at the Bureau of Economics at the Federal Trade Commission. So I should close with the last thing um, that I say being our views do not express those of the commission or any of its commissioners, but one former commissioner. And I will, I will end with that. Thank you. Thank you, Joshua. Um, Ilya Selman is also professor of law at George Mason's Antonin Scalia Law School. Uh, he is an adjunct at the Cato Institute. Uh, he is known for his writing on a great many legal subjects, from the legality of targeted drone strikes to uh, election law. And uh, his most recent book is called Democracy and Political Ignorance, Why Smaller Government is Smarter. He's also author of a book you may know, The Grasping Hand, Kilo versus City of New London, and The Limits of Eminent Domain. Uh, Ilya is particularly well known for his work on eminent domain. Uh, if you saw someone uh, <clears throat> upset about the city of Baltimore's attempt to seize the legendary Preakness horse race uh, recently, it was probably either Ilya or I who were uh, writing those pieces. Uh, he is well known to many of you as uh, one of the regular bloggers at the Volokh Conspiracy. And finally, if you will look to the first row of our auditorium seating here, someone waving at you, uh, please do wave, uh, is Ilya Shapiro. And this will help you, here is Ilya Soman, this will help you with your libertarian Ilya disambiguation. Ilya Soman. <laughs> I'd like to start by thanking the Cato Institute for organizing this panel uh, and all of you for coming. Uh, and those who need yet further assistance in clearing up Ilya confusion, last year I wrote an entire blog post devoted to this question called Ilya Confusion, a Guide for the Perplexed. So you can look that up if you need to. Uh, also, I'm glad to be on this panel, even though it has a little bit of an incestuous quality in that Josh Wright is not only one of the leading antitrust scholars in the country, but he's also been my 
colleague at George Mason for many years. Andrew Grossman is a very successful former student of mine, though it's possible we may not fully agree on the case he's going to talk about. So I'm privileged to talk on the all George Mason panel, except for perhaps the moderator. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about uh, the case of Nick versus Township of Scott, uh, which reversed the Williamson County case, a 34-year-old precedent that created a catch-22 that barred most takings cases against state and local governments from ever appearing in federal courts, even though these take cases were brought under the uh, takings clause of the Fifth Amendment, which says that if the government takes your property, they have to pay just compensation. Uh, so normally, uh, there is a presumption that you can go to federal court in order to bring a case under the federal constitution. That seems to make good sense. You don't have to be a law professor to get that. Uh, but under the Williamson County Doctrine, you in fact could not do this uh, for virtually all takings cases filed against state and local governments. Uh, so I'll first start off with the facts of Nick and how it came about. Mary Rose Nick uh, is, is an older lady who owns a 90-acre property in a rural area of Pennsylvania. At some point, some of her neighbors concluded that they thought uh, that there were old grave sites going back perhaps as far as the 1700s uh, on her uh, land. Uh, Nick disputes this, but they thought that they were there. Uh, and they wanted access uh, to those sites. Uh, the township passed an ordinance uh, saying that any cemeteries on your property, uh, there have to be public access at all daylight hours, and also you have to give access to inspectors uh, appointed by the township. Uh, if you deny access, you end up getting fines of $300 to $600 per day that you deny it. Uh, Mary Rose Nick was obviously very unhappy about the situation. She filed a case in state court uh, arguing this is a taking. Uh, it was uh, dismissed in state court, so instead she filed uh, a federal case, the case in state court was dismissed on procedural grounds, uh, and she said in federal court this is a violation of the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment. The government has in effect taken my property, so I deserve just compensation. There she ran into the Williamson County doctrine. Williamson County uh, is a 1985 decision where the court said that you cannot bring a takings case against a state or a local government in federal court unless you've gotten a final decision on the issue from the relevant state regulatory agency, and also you have exhausted all possible state court remedies, potentially all the way up to the state Supreme Court. Uh, uh, and uh, on top of that, though, if you've gone through all of this, you've gone to highest possible state court, and you've gotten an adverse decision, then the very fact that you've gone to state court creates a catch-22, as Chief Justice Roberts put it in his majority opinion, uh, which in and of itself bars you from then going to uh, federal court. Uh, so the very thing that you need to do in order to get into federal court uh, under the Williamson County Doctrine is also a thing which then prevents you from going into federal court, because there are these rules saying if you've gotten a case fully adjudicated in a state court, then you can't just turn around and uh, refile it in federal court. The Supreme Court formalized this in the same 
and Remo decision in 2005, but it was generally assumed to be the case uh, even before then. Uh, so this is the kind of problem that gives the legal profession a bad name among normal people, that the very hoop that you have to jump through in order to finally get your case heard before a federal judge uh, is then something that prevents you uh, from being able to do it. Uh, and I think this is the main reason why uh, I believe that the court was justified in overturning uh, Williamson County in the Nick case, uh, because Williamson County had effectively created a double standard where it's virtually impossible to bring this sort of federal constitutional claim uh, in a federal court, which is not the case with other seemingly similar claims under the Bill of Rights uh, that uh, what the, uh, the court in Williamson County had said uh, is that we don't really know for sure whether the state has really uh, taken your property without just compensation until a state court has made a ruling saying that they're not going to pay you. Uh, well, this sort of rule is not applied uh, in any other area of constitutional rights. Consider uh, several possible examples. The case of prior restraints of speech. If there's a law that imposes a prior restraint, uh, it's always possible you could go to state court and just have a state court overturn the law, and then uh, your speech will never be restrained. Uh, and yet, there's not required in free speech cases. Similarly, if you believe you've been discriminated against on the basis of race or sex or some other kind of unconstitutional discrimination in employment by a state or local government or in admissions to a state university, it's always possible that if you file a case in state court, the state court will strike down, will strike down the discriminatory policy, and then you won't actually be subject to that discrimination, yet such cases are routinely filed directly in federal court. Uh, and there are many other uh, similar such cases. Moreover, there's an additional anomaly here in that uh, if you file a case in state court that deals with a federal constitutional issue, the defendant, generally speaking, has a right to remove the case to federal court. So in some cases under Williamson County, you would file in state court challenging a, uh, a, uh, a possible taking by the local or state government, then they would remove to federal court. And once it got removed to federal court, they would then turn around and say, well, you didn't get a, f a final uh, decision from a state court, and therefore, uh, this isn't right for adjudication under Williamson County, uh, and so the case has to be dismissed. And that's exactly what happened in a number of circuit court decisions in the 1990s uh, and later on. Uh, I would add that the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, which incorporated the Bill of Rights against the states, strongly suggests that the takings clause should be treated uh, just like other parts of the Bill of Rights. We know that many of the uh, framers of the 14th Amendment were deeply concerned about uncompensated taking of property by the former Confederate states, sometimes African-American property, sometimes that of white Unionists who had remained loyal to the Union during the Civil War. So there's no reason to believe that there should be this kind of double standard. As I discuss in my article, some people make the argument that this situation actually isn't unique. In their view, it's similar to the situation with habeas corpus cases, where under the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, and also later Supreme Court decisions interpreting it, it has become very difficult to challenge state court decisions that uh, undermine procedural rights of criminal defendants uh, in federal court. Uh, to my mind, there is something to this analogy, but even the EDPA jurisprudence, as flawed as I think it is, doesn't go as far as Williamson County did. The EDPA cases still do say that uh, 
if it's a really egregious error by the state court, uh, you can still uh, have it reviewed by a federal court under Williamson County, even if the uh, state court got it completely egregiously wrong, no matter how bad it was, you're still barred from uh, bringing your case in federal court. But ultimately, there's a little paradox here in that very few of the people who make this analogy between Williamson County uh, and habeas actually approve of the habeas jurisprudence. Uh, they're just trying to use it to beat the uh, property rights people over the head saying, aha, your case is not unique. Uh, to my mind, the better stance is to say uh, the habeas jurisprudence is wrong, which I think much of it actually is. And also, this case is wrong, too, so we should get rid of all of these kinds of double standards. So I think the habeas situation is a problem. It is egregious, just not quite as egregious uh, as Williamson County was. Uh, finally, it is sometimes said, and Justice Kagan argues this in her dissenting opinion uh, in uh, the case, that really the issue is that on taking state courts have superior expertise to federal courts. We should leave these matters to them. We wouldn't want federal courts to be a major player in taking case, cases, as she expresses concern over this. Uh, to my mind, if there is a federal constitutional issue going on, that's precisely where federal courts should indeed be major uh, players. That's their job. Uh, and this expertise rationale, if taken seriously, could be used to keep a wide range of other federal constitutional cases out of federal court. There's many other situations where state courts might know more about what's going on uh, than federal courts, but that doesn't mean the cases should be barred from federal court. I also explained in my article why I think it's actually not that likely that state courts really do have superior expertise in this area, at least not as a general matter. For many observers who may not have a special interest in takings cases, the really big significance of Nick uh, was its possible implications for the doctrine of precedent. Uh, the court did overturn a 34-year-old precedent here, and many people, particularly on the left, are worried about well, what will happen if they overturn lots of other precedents. Uh, I can't engage too much in this larger debate and also over the broader debate about what should be the standards for overruling a precedent. I do have another article I'm working on on the issue of how Nick fits into the broader debate over precedent. Uh, but here, I'll just discuss how it fits into the court's current jurisprudence on precedent, what I call its precedent about precedent. Uh, so the court has laid out several criteria, and I believe that the situation in Nick fits those criteria to a T when it comes to overturning past constitutional precedents. One factor they say should be considered is whether the precedent has been eroded by later decisions. This one certainly has. There are a number of later decisions where the court says that property rights uh, should not be held to a different standard, should be treated just as well as other constitutional rights. In the Dolan case, the court says they shouldn't be the poor relation of constitutional law. Other later cases also allow challenges to other land use regulations based on other parts of the Bill of Rights, like freedom of speech or freedom of religion. Uh, so that's an erosion as well. Uh, they also say it's important to ask whether there's been substantial and continuing criticism uh, of the precedent in question. Here, there pretty obviously has. There's been a lot of criticism by legal scholars. But even more importantly, uh, there's a concurring opinion in the San Remo case in 2005 where four Supreme Court justices, including Justice Kennedy, Justice O'Connor, and then Chief Justice Rehnquist, all said that 
Williamson County should be reconsidered. This is notable because Rehnquist and O'Connor had actually voted with the majority in the original Williamson County decision. There's not a lot of prominent Supreme Court decisions where two of the justices who are then in the majority later say, you know what, we think we got this wrong. Uh, so if that isn't substantial and continuing criticism, it's hard for me to say what might be. Uh, they also uh, talk about the importance of the quality of the court's reasoning. The reasoning in Williamson County is really, really bad uh, for all the reasons I already said. If you take it seriously, it would throw out a whole bunch of different uh, standard federal constitutional claims out of federal court. Finally, there, there is the issue of reliance interests for reasons I discussed in the article. I don't think there actually was a really big reliance on Williamson County, at least not a legitimate one. Uh, the only significant reliance might be uh, by state and local governments which uh, take property in situations where a state court would rule in their favor, uh, uh, but they would lose in federal court. That doesn't strike me as a very sympathetic kind of reliance interest. And there are some other technical reasons as well why the reliance interest here is not that important. Uh, so therefore, there was good reason to overturn the precedent. In her dissent, Justice Kenneth Kagan discusses uh, uh, that in her view, she believes that this involves overturning not just Williamson County, but numerous previous precedents which hold that you don't have to have compensation at the same time as the taking occurs, so long as the state or local authority offers a reasonable, certain, and adequate provision for obtaining compensation later. I discussed these cases at some length in the article. The key point to understand about them is that if you look at them, all the ones that were brought against state or local governments are actually cases where the state or local government conceded that there had been a taking and that uh, they were liable for compensation, but just that there was a procedure afterwards for determining exactly how much. This is very different from a case like Nick, uh, where the government concedes nothing. They basically say, we owe you nothing. There hasn't been a taking at all. Uh, by definition, a case like that is not one where the provision for obtaining compensation is either certain or adequate. If they're saying, we owe you nothing, it can't be certain, uh, and it's not going to be adequate either. Uh, so I think those cases that she cites just aren't really the same type of situation and therefore distinguishable. Uh, just, Chief Justice Roberts offers other reasons for distinguishing them in his majority opinion. I think his reasons are actually less compelling than the one that I just gave, but we can uh, talk about them. Uh, finally, I'd like to briefly discuss uh, why we should care about this in practice, about the impact of this decision. Uh, in many cases, it probably won't matter much whether a takings case is heard in state or in federal court. Uh, they have to apply the same precedent and the same uh, deal with the same kinds of issues. But sometimes it does matter uh, because uh, the Supreme Court has long recognized all the way back to the classic case of Martin versus Hunter's Wasi in 1816. Federal courts are supposed to have the final say over federal constitutional issues because of the fear of bias or favoritism in state courts uh, that often, particularly in states where state judges are elected, uh, 
there is a close political connection between state judges and state government officials, including the kind who engage in policies which uh, may lead to takings cases. Uh, and this may be even more true in recent years and in the past, where uh, state court elections have become more contested and more politicized, so their alliance between different parts of the same political machine may be closer uh, than before. It's also important uh, that there be a minimum federal floor for uh, federal constitutional rights that state courts don't go below. And even if the reason why they go below is not because of bias, but merely because of error or random variation or differences in local political culture or the like, it still uh, is an issue. Uh, another potential problem is that in some states, if you go to state court, there is lengthy procedural delays lasting as much as several years. California is notorious for this before you can get compensation even if you win. So that's a, another situation where it makes a difference. Some people have speculated that this case presages a potential revolution in favor of stronger protection for takings clause rights. Uh, I'm somewhat skeptical about this. Uh, I'm not, I think we don't yet have proof that any such thing is going to happen, though I would potentially welcome it uh, if it did. Uh, there are also some who say, well, this is the difference that Kavanaugh made on the court. But again, it looks like he had the same view as Justice Kennedy did uh, in Sam Remo. So much more can be said, and I look forward to the discussions and questions. Thank you. One of the interesting Supreme Court cases that is not uh, covered by its own article in the Cato Supreme Court Review is the census question case. And here to discuss it is Andrew Grossman, co-leader of the National Appellate Practice at the law firm of Baker Hostetler. Uh, he has written widely on law and finance, bankruptcy law, national security law, and separation of powers law. His practice focuses on high-profile and complex commercial administrative and constitutional litigation, so don't cross him. Um, he has submitted many important amicus briefs before the Supreme Court, often for the Cato Institute, where we are delighted to have him as an adjunct scholar. He writes frequently in the Wall Street Journal and other places, and uh, previously served as a legal fellow with the Heritage Foundation's Mies Center, and he clerked for none other than the Fifth Circuit's Judge Edith Jones, Andrew Grossman. Thank you, Walter, and uh, thank you to Cato for having me here. Um, I learned a lot from uh, Josh's and uh, Ilya's presentations. Uh, I'm afraid to say that my presentation uh, is going to be a little bit different. Um, let me set the stage. So it was a clear day in June here in DC. It was the final day of the Supreme Court term. And no, I, I wasn't at the court or anything like that. I was at, in my office uh, at the computer. And you know, I had SCOTUS blog open uh, in one window. And then I was, uh, had the uh, court's website open in the other window. And as one does, I was frantically reloading the court's website for the last big decisions of the term. Um, I assure you, every firm across the city that's what everybody is doing in, in, in late June, at least uh, the ones who can't get off for vacation. Um, 
So still outstanding at that point was a decision on one of the administration's signature policies. There were major constitutional and policy issues at play. SCOTUS blog announced that the decision was out about 30 seconds before I was able to pull up the opinion on the screen, and I still didn't know what the outcome was when I dove into the syllabus, the summary at the top of the decision. The Chief Justice had the opinion for the court, and there were about a half dozen issues for him to work through. He went with one might call the conservative side on the first issue, and then it was the same for the second issue, it was the same for the third issue, and hey, it looked like it was going to be a clean sweep. And then, of course, it wasn't. It was the same chief, but with a different majority, and he seemed to go the other way. Now, I backtracked a bit because it seemed like I must have misunderstood something. The reasoning was, let's say, unusual, and it really wasn't anything that I had expected. But no, there was no misunderstanding. The chief's opinion for the court had rejected the challenge to the Obamacare individual mandate. I, I'm sorry, I meant the uh, Trump administration's attempt to reinstate a citizenship question on the census. It's, a, it's an easy mistake to make. Um, the Obamacare decision, NFIB versus Sibelius, and the census case, Department of Commerce versus New York, were separated in time by seven years less one day. In some other more pertinent respect, you can call it gestalt if you don't want to call it law, the two decisions are barely separated at all. After NFIB was handed down, I wrote a long analysis of it for the Cato Supreme Court Review. This time around, I didn't write anything because I wasn't sure what the census decision means. And I'm still not entirely sure. I've heard a few theories, though, um, and I'm going to share them with you, four of them. And then, if you'll indulge me, uh, we'll have a vote. And uh, we'll <laughs> see what we can figure out. So let's begin with the thumbnail sketch of the case. Every census from 1820 to 2000, with one exception, asked at least some people about their citizenship status. The 2010 census was the first in over 150 years to jettison the question entirely. In 2018, Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross announced that the citizenship question would be reinstated so as to give the Department of Justice district-level data that it could use to help enforce the Voting Rights Act. Now, the chief's opinion for the court held that adding the question did not violate the Constitution's enumeration clause. He held that it did not violate the Census Act. And he held that the reasoning of that decision uh, by the uh, secretary was sufficiently rational so as to pass uh, arbitrary and capricious review under the Administrative Procedure Act. Although adding the question might depress response rates, uh, because presumably some people would see the question and decide not to send back the census questionnaire, uh, it would still provide better voting, voting district level data for Voting Rights Act enforcement. The court held that Secretary Ross considered the relevant factors under the statute, reasonably weighed the risks and benefits of different approaches, and articulated a satisfactory explanation for his decision. And in the usual case, really in basically every case uh, forever, uh, that would be where the analysis ended. Uh, but not this time. The chief, joined by the court's liberal bloc, went on to rule, and I quote, that the secretary's decision must be set aside because it rested on a pretextual basis. Administrative law, he explained, requires an agency to disclose its reasons for acting. And the general rule is that a court may not reject an agency's stated reasons for acting simply because the agency might also have had other unstated reasons. But decades ago, the court had recognized an exception to that rule for when there is, and I quote, a strong showing of bad faith or improper behavior. The court's opinion holds that the exception applies when an agency's stated rationale appears to be a pretext. In other words, where it's not the driving rationale for the agency's decision. 
It then holds that the VRA rationale was such a pretext based on a few facts all taken together. The first was that Secretary Ross had been considering adding the citizenship question from the time he entered office in 2017. The second was that the VRA rationale arose relatively late in the game. And the third was that Ross and his staff had reached out to the Department of Justice to ask it to request the addition of the citizenship question. In other words, and I realize this is a somewhat pointed way of putting it, everything was legal except for the mismatch between what Secretary Ross believed in his heart and what he wrote down on the piece of paper that was the basis of his decision. So let's now consider a few theories about what that decision actually means, that is the court's decision. So theory number one. Our first theory is that the court was simply and modestly following the law. Now, it's very easy to be cynical nowadays, but we shouldn't dismiss this approach out of hand. It's been the law since 1943 or so that when courts review agency action, they're, limiting to, they're limited to reviewing the agency's stated rationales. But that assumes from the get-go that the agency is acting in good faith and honestly stated, uh, and has honestly stated its reasoning. Judicial review can't work properly when that assumption doesn't hold true. The court recognized as much in a 1971 decision, Citizens to Preserve Overton Park versus Volpe, which stated that further inquiry may be required upon, and this is that same quote again, a strong showing of bad faith or improper behavior. In that instance, uh, in that case, uh, the court may be able to in inquire into what officials were thinking and attempt to discern what was the real reason for their action. Sure, that was basically dicta in the Volpe decision, but many lower courts have followed it. What's new here in the Department of Commerce decision is that it extends that notion of bad faith to an even broader category of rationales. When the lower courts have applied the bad faith exception, which happens from time to time, it's typically been in circumstances where the evidence shows that the government's actions were taken in, and I really don't have a better term here, were taken in bad faith. Um, that generally includes things like retaliation against particular individuals for protected speech or association, uh, illegal discrimination, that kind of thing. Evidence of pretext can be relevant in those cases because it supports the claim that the agency was really acting for some forbidden reason not the stated one. The VRA rationale here was arguably not what one would call a pretext. Uh, even if there were other reasons, VRA enforcement was still one of the reasons for reinstating the, the citizenship question, and the court even held that it was a sufficient reason to do so. There's no indication that Secretary Ross disbelieved that reason or that it may not have been his sole or primary reason. That's not exactly a pretext then. Instead, it describes a far broader category of rationales that simply may not cover the field of what it was that the agency was thinking. The problem is, is that the court's decisions dating back to at least Chenery II in 1947 recognize that an agency can adopt new reasons, brand new made up reasons for supporting its decisions after the original reasons that it offered were found to be wanting. Now, isn't that really the same kind of pretext in general that we're talking about here? The problem is agencies do that all the time, and until now, courts have never really had a problem with it. Okay, that sort of leads directly to our second theory. The court has effectively declared open season on attacking controversial administrative actions. If one accepts the chief's reasoning at face value, it seems to indicate that when an agency action appears to be driven by unstated reasons, a court is empowered to go beyond the rulemaking record, inquire into the relevant official's thinking, and even vacate the action if it can be demonstrated that the agency was acting on some kind of ulterior motive. If so, if that's what the decision actually means, then that's a radical shift in how courts review agency action. Let's consider an example from Justice Thomas's partial dissent. 
During the Obama administration, the FCC was against the idea of regulating internet access under the strict regulatory regime of Title II of the Communications Act. But then it went ahead and did it anyway, issuing what it called the Open Internet Order with a lengthy discussion of the rationale in favor of regulating under Title II. But there was much left unsaid in the FCC's statement. The law hadn't changed, the facts hadn't changed, but what had changed was that the White House told the FCC to go the Title II route. Was that order based on an unlawful pretext? Well, I don't see why not. Now, here's another example. Every single time the Republicans retake the White House, a year or two later, the Department of Labor imposes new financial disclosure requirements for labor unions. Invariably, it cites the need to improve transparency and to smoke out corruption. And every time the Democrats retake the White House, the Department of Labor dials back the very same disclosure requirements. In that case, it cites the interest of, of avoiding unnecessary burdens and preserving confidentiality for internal uh, operations of labor unions. So sure, fine, whatever, those are all really great rationales. But like, honestly, nobody over the age of five thinks that that's really what's driving these decisions. Would any of those decisions actually survive the Department of Commerce standard? Again, I don't really see how they, were, how they would. If you take the court's reasoning at face value, there's basically no major policy action that couldn't at least be challenged on pretext grounds. Now, maybe the challengers win, maybe the challengers lose, but in many cases, they're going to get discovery against the agency, and maybe they'll even get to depose some of the senior officials. That's not bad. The chief may have opened that door, but I honestly, I don't think that's really what he meant to do. So that brings us to our third theory, and that theory is that the chief's decision may involve more than a little bit of pretext itself. <laughs> there is a very important word, maybe even the most important word in this case, that actually appears nowhere in any of the 90 or so pages of the opinions. Despite going unmentioned, that word is practically written between the lines on every single page. That word, of course, is Trump. There is, as I said, no other case in which the court has held that an otherwise lawful and properly reasoned agency action is invalid because a senior official may have had something else on his mind. And the chief gave the back of his hand to the Department of Justice's request for the citizenship question. His opinion treats the DOJ as nothing more than a tool for Secretary Ross's scheming. But the Department of Justice's request was drafted by the Acting Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights, and it was put through a rigorous review process that included the chief of the voting rights section. So all of these people would have had to be in on the scheme. Would the court show so little respect for the considered opinion of the Department of Justice in any other administration? One, one suspects that the answer is no. So it may be that the court's decision is, to use Josh Blackman's term, Trump law, not what one might call law law. Now, our final theory takes us back to where we started, NFIB versus Sibelius. Many attributed the Chief Justice's change of heart over the individual mandate in that case to concerns about the court's institutional legitimacy. In other words, the concern that, the court, that if the court had struck down the Obama administration's signature policy achievement, it would, have been a view, it would have been viewed as a partisan decision rather than a principled one. We know that the chief cares deeply about the court's role and standing as the head of the branch of, the, of government in which Americans have the greatest faith and confidence. The court, in his view, should be beyond reproach. The justices should be beyond reproach. And that means that sometimes their cases and deciding their cases will have to involve consideration of the court's standing as an institution, particularly where the law is pliable enough to, to accommodate that kind of concern.
Now, here's where I should note that CNN's Joan Biskupic reported just last week that, just like in NFIB, the Chief Justice had initially joined with the court's conservatives in the census case and only later changed his vote. The Chief has not, of course, acknowledged or explained the shift, but it may reflect his fretting, his concern, over these kinds of broader issues concerning the court's role and status in our democracy. Now, a couple points against this theory. The first is that, I mean, come on, it doesn't work, right? And the chief has to know that by now. It's not even three months later, and the usual critics are right back to calling the court a rubber stamp for the Trump administration and attacking its legitimacy on a daily basis. The same thing happened, of course, right after NFIB. The second problem is that even the appearance that the chief can be swayed by this kind of lobbying inevitably leads to more attempts and more unseemly ones at that, to intimidate the court by threatening its legitimacy based on how it decides particular cases. 20 years ago, the New York Times didn't run an editorial for every single big case, declaring that if the justices in the majority go in a particular direction, then they're obviously a bunch of political hacks. Now it does, and the Times, as I'm sure you know, is the least of it. By appearing responsive to such attacks, the chief will only draw more of them. Again, he knows this. And so surely this theory is a bad one, right? So anyway, but if the theory is right, then the legal reasoning in the chief's opinion may be, in effect, a ticket good for one ride only. In other words, this may be the beginning and the end of the pretext gambit, at least so far as run-of-the-mill cases are concerned. For what it's worth, the same has been said of the chief's reasoning in the Obamacare decision. So those are four theories. And now I think we'll vote, and don't worry, uh, there's no a citizenship requirement or anything like that, or a voter ID. So um, we'll just ask for a show of hands. Uh, let's start with theory number one, the theory that the court was simply applying the law in a straightforward fashion. Fair enough. OK, that's a couple. All right, theory number two. It's now open season on the administrative state. It's a very uh, interesting, perhaps optimistic view. Uh, Theory number three, Trump law. And theory number four, institutional legitimacy. Well, it looks like theory number three takes the day. Uh, as for me, uh, you'll notice that I didn't vote. Um, I still don't know the answer. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. We're going to turn to questions now. Uh, I think you all know the rules from previous panels. Uh, please wait to be called on. Wait for the microphone to arrive uh, so that everyone in the room and our audience watching online can hear the question. And please start by announcing your name and affiliation. Um, before that, let me ask whether any of the panelists want to respond to or, or even extend and amend their, their remarks. And any Cross comments? Okay, I don't see any. Um, yes, uh, fourth, fourth row. John Vecchioni, cause of action. My question's for Mr. Grossman. Whatever he intended, it's precedent. Doesn't this mean that the lower courts are going to be? directing people to hand over discovery now against government agencies everywhere because it's not what he had in his mind, it's what he wrote down. Um, sure, I mean, you know, one could start by observing that some precedents are more equal than other precedents. Um, 
There's, there are so many caveats in the chief's decision. I don't know what the standard is for a pretext, and I think one would be hard-pressed to uh, lay down any sort of objective standard based on the, 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 the actual text of his decision. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of attempts to do that, and I think depending on the agency and depending on the district court judge and depending on how the facts appear, they may be successful in some cases, particularly at least in getting the foot in the door for discovery. At this point, uh, we've seen in a number, I mean, there are always lots of cases against the federal government and against government agencies, and I've seen in dozens of cases at this point uh, parties filing notices of supplemental authority or even motions uh, based on the Chief Justice's opinion in this case. So far, I don't think I've seen too many that have succeeded, but obviously the day is still young. Just to clarify, the other four justices in the majority joined him in that language, right? They did. They okay. did. More questions. Um, yes, way in the back on the left. Nathan Welch, uh, unaffiliated. Um, Professor Solman, um, I had a question in regards to uh, how much do you see this as a case that may have lasting impact or going forward or more of, uh, I guess, the Supreme Court clearinghouse of an old case that uh, general consensus thought it was bad? Is it going to, do you see any, I guess, seeds for them reevaluating uh, other standing issues where exhaustion rules, uh, reevaluating what does or doesn't constitute harms uh, in regards to other favored or not favored rights, um, it, especially in the context of it, if you listen to Supreme Court oral arguments, what you hear uh, in a decent amount of cases uh, is discussion about, oh, well, if you take this rule, we're really opening the doors to the federal court. You know, the the, the idea that we're going to flood the courts with more litigation and stuff like that. Is that, do you see that as still a concern that the that they may or may not be actually willing to, to close the lid on that one and just take it for the legal arguments as opposed to the practical uh, implication of the federal court maybe getting more cases? Yeah, so I think there's really three issues there. One is, is this really going to result in a sort of opening the floodgates to a large number of cases? Kagan raises this concern in her dissent. I'm not so sure because I think uh, it's still the case that there is little point in bringing one of these takings cases unless you have a reasonable chance to win. So the only cases where it's likely to have a floodgate or a significant increase is ones where they previously thought federal and state courts would have diverged. That is a real category of cases, but it's probably not a floodgate. If it does turn out to be a floodgate, as I say in the article, that will actually be a feature rather than a bug. It will be an indication that there actually was a large number of places where state courts were essentially flouting relevant federal press about what is or is not a taking, uh, and it would mean, therefore, a significant ratcheting up of uh, protection for this area of constitutional rights. That would be a good thing. Nobody claims it was a bad thing that there was a floodgate of new civil rights cases after Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, there was a floodgate because there was lots of racial discrimination by state and local governments. I'm not claiming this decision is anywhere near as historic, but if a floodgate does open, it will be a sign that uh, it does have historic significance. Uh, I think it will, regardless 
regardless have, uh, this goes to her second point, uh, regardless have a significance because this category of cases now can get into federal court and a significant number will. Uh, and that's, I think, a good thing, eliminating this double standard, even if uh, it only has a modest impact in terms of the actual substantive outcomes of the cases. And then third, will other doctrines be reevaluated as a result? Uh, the sh uh, in the short running, probably not, because for the reasons I mentioned in my presentation, uh, this case was, uh, or this precedent, Williamson County, was unique in virtually completely barring a whole category of constitutional rights cases uh, from federal court. But to the extent that it does rest on the principle that if you have a federal constitutional case, the presumption should be that you can get it into federal court. Uh, it may at the margin lead to the rethinking or beginning of rethinking of some of the EDPA and habeas cases, perhaps some other cases as well. Uh, to my mind, the community of criminal law uh, people who don't like the EDPA cases, and I share many of their concerns, Instead of saying, as a few of them did, aha, well, this means that Williamson County is okay, what they should be saying is that the Williamson County overturning a Nick should justify reconsidering some of the precedents that keep our type of federal constitutional claim out of federal court, though, as I mentioned, it doesn't, it doesn't do so as categorically uh, as Williamson County did. If I could add on to that question slightly for uh, Professor Soman, uh, what about bringing uh, federal taking slaves against the federal government in district courts? There's been some foment in that area, but you know, it generally hasn't worked. It's hard to see the distinguishing principle other than you know, the sort of statutory one that's commonly raised. Um, so in the f you can, in fact, bring claims against the federal government in uh, federal court. It's just that they're channeled, in most cases, to the court of federal claims. There's a big difference between saying you can't uh, bring it in any federal court at all versus Congress saying by statute that a particular type of claim belongs in a particular type of more specialized court. Uh, there sometimes are some procedural hoops uh, that you have to jump through uh, of, uh, to uh, to get the uh, claim heard on the merits, uh, but that's very different from saying once you jump through the hoop, you then still can't bring the case. Uh, so I think there's a, there's, a, there's a big difference between Congress exercising its power to say some federal, a specific type of federal court will hear this claim versus saying that uh, it can't be heard in a federal court at all. More questions. Uh, the very back row. Thank you. Uh, great panel, Paul Kamen, our Washington attorney. Uh, Andrew, uh, regarding your um, uh, discussion of the census case, how do you think the court will rule on the Kelly versus U.S. Bridgegate case where the uh, lower court looked at the subjective reasons of Bridget Kelly for putting up the cones to stop the traffic at Fort Lee, that it was political payback, and, and um, instead of uh, the reason that they were proffering that they were doing a traffic study, uh, they raised several uh, arguments, slippery slope, that if they uphold that, then they could go after a mayor for fixing a pothole in a neighborhood where he's got great support because he wants to support his base there uh, and involves a property issue too, Ilya, in the sense that the government's arguing that they had a higher uh, a state person to clear up this traffic jam and therefore there was a property interest of the state that was being expended that involved it. So 
I'm just curious about uh, the looking at the reasons uh, for the decision. Sure. The one thing I'll bet is that however the court decides that case, it probably won't cite the census case. Um, you know, there's been a series of decisions, you know, over the years where, you know, prosecutors have overreached uh, to bring uh, corruption-type cases against politicos and, and government official, other government officials for doing things that are kind of in the mind run of what it is the government officials and politicians do. So I, I, I kind of view that case along more, more along those lines than having a whole lot to do with the, uh, the census case. I wonder, since you directed part, at least part of that question at me, uh, I think I'm not as that familiar with the Bridgegate case. I understand that this is uh, 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 the case involving the former governor where supposedly some of his officials use it as, as political payback. To, uh, I'm not sure that case involves a doctrine of deference in the same way that the census case did, uh, where uh, I think what's to my mind here i differ a little bit with andrew i think what's going on in the census case is the notion that it makes little sense to defer to the agency's expertise when the expertise based rationale they put forward is just a smokescreen and doesn't and that the decision doesn't really reflect an application of expertise it reflects something done for another motive that had nothing to do with the expertise and this case is a really blatant example uh, of doing something for that other kind of motive that has nothing to do with expertise there are other cases like some of the ones that Andrew mentioned, where there's, the motives are more mixed. Uh, uh, but here, it's a really clear case of a rationale being put up as a smokescreen, which had no real basis in any kind of uh, expertise. Uh, and therefore, deference should not apply. The fact that deference doesn't apply doesn't mean that the government can't win. It just means that the normal presumptions in its favor wouldn't apply. Uh, and I think that, to my mind, that's the, the best way of understanding a census case and why it may, whether it's, that makes it different from the Bridgegate case, I'm not sure, because I don't know enough about uh, the Bridgegate case, but maybe that is also a particularly egregious case where uh, you know, it's very clear that the study was just a put-up job, the supposed study was just a put-up job, and in reality, they were trying to pay back political opponents or governor. If so, I wouldn't lose a lot of sweep over that being struck down. <laughs> Are there any questions for Professor Joshua Wright? <laughs> Okay. Well, then, in that case, I'll ask. Oh, okay, uh, Devin, you, uh, or it's because his his argument was so obviously correct that nobody has any reason <laughs> to question it. Okay. Not the first panel I've been on with con law mixed in. Uh, ne next to Devin, there's someone who hasn't, I think, asked questions recently. Um, if it, uh, uh, this is for Professor Wright, right? No. Oh, in that case, well, in that case, let me use moderator's prerogative because I have a couple of questions, having edited the piece. Um, first. In the uh, uh, back and forth between uh, Kavanaugh for the majority and Gorsuch for the dissenters on uh, you're putting form over substance, no, you're putting form over substance, and it went on for a while. Um, Gorsuch had an interesting argument that Apple could reconfigure its uh, set of contracts and its basically supply chain to dodge what the court is trying to do and wind up accomplishing the same objective, if I'm correctly uh, describing that. So my first question is, uh, is he right? And my second question is, the um, reaction in much of the business community has been nervousness about whether Illinois brick will be chipped away further. And since we know that various states have done Illinois brick repealers in uh, put, put it in their state law, and, and there's been resulting state antitrust litigation, uh, what would the landscape look like? How much more expensive would it, would it look like? And what would the effects be if, if that were struck down by Congress or, or this court? Sure. So let me do the uh, the the questions in order. So um, 
both, both sides sort of point uh, in part of the form versus substance uh, you know, sort of blame game, uh, point out the ability for Apple to arbitrage the other side's rule. Um, I think in the sort of obvious sense, both rules articulated by both sides could be arbitraged, uh, leaving, and, and so you've got sort of a choice on where to put uh, put the exposure. I mean, the, real, the original, uh, so the answer is yes, but the answer is also yes for the dissent's rule, right? Um, and so there's a, a choice about which sort of form of arbitrage would be preferred by a distribution uh, platform. Do you want to get sued by the direct purchasers? Um, excuse me, do you want to get sued by the developers or do you want to get sued um, by consumers in dealing with with class actions, I think if you were to line up a bunch of the counsel for those platforms, I think um, they would tell you pretty quickly. Uh, they would prefer not to be defending uh, the class consumer cases in 30 different states plus the feds. Um, so I think both rules can, can be arbitraged. I, I do think, and one of the reasons why the antitrust community was a little bit excited about um, what might happen here uh, in terms of the whittling away of Illinois brick over time is, you know, the Antitrust Modernization Commission, sort of a bipartisan team of antitrust experts now, uh, now more than 15 years old, sort of recommended um, considering going doing away with Illinois brick. Uh, the current Assistant Attorney General for the Department of Justice uh, had given speeches, sort of indicating. Now they backed off of that in the brief in the particular case. Um, I think that the whittling one way or another with the, with the states uh, is going to ultimately happen. Uh, so, you know, whether this case or the next or, or sort of down the line, I think the support for the indirect purchaser rule has diminished over time uh, slowly. Maybe this speeds it up. Okay. We have time for probably a couple more questions. And I was going to call on the gentleman on the aisle there uh, next to Devin. Yes. Yeah, yes, the, the, one, more, one more row back. Thanks. Uh, Dean McGrath with the Georgetown Law Center, and this is for Professor Wright. It's a little bit um, a field of the indirect purchaser rule, but what are your thoughts on the application of antitrust laws to the uh, uh, Facebook and uh, Google platform issues? Sure. So they apply to everyone. Um, is my, my, my initial, uh, both agencies today announced in an oversight hearing that they simultaneously have investigations going on uh, with, with everybody. Uh, now, investigations aren't lawsuits, um, uh, but it is interesting, and I think uh, Senator Lee in the oversight hearing called the agencies for task for, uh, I mean, there are agreements between the agencies over, I'd, I've never thought uh, it made much sense to have two anyway, I wasn't allowed to say that when I was at the FTC, but now, now I can say it. Um, you know, uh, but having both simultaneously investigate multiple platforms uh, seems, a, seems a little bit, little bit silly. Look, uh, one of the big differences uh, between antitrust law and the rest of the world and antitrust law in the United States is that a plaintiff, government or private, cannot prevail in an antitrust lawsuit uh, by pointing out that a competitor was harmed. Uh, it is a feature, not a bug, of American antitrust law that you must show harm to competition and to consumers, not just that uh, a firm, be it platform or otherwise, has outperformed it, it, its rivals. 
that distinction, I, I think, is the main, not the only, but the primary explanation uh, for why the platforms and large tech firms have largely, largely, but not totally, prevailed in antitrust suits in the United States, and they've lost overwhelmingly uh, in Europe. Uh, uh, being an American tech company is also, uh, you know, uh, explains the win rate in the European, uh, uh, in front of the European agency as well. Uh, it seems they uh, like especially to sue American tech companies. Um, so, look, I think both agencies are serious. They'll investigate. Um, but the bottom line sort of feature of American antitrust law is you can't make these determinations within agencies alone. Uh, you've got to go see an Article Three judge and have evidence of consumer harm. Uh, so far... Uh, that's not happened in big cases here involving tech platforms. Uh, to know more than that requires to know the government's theory of harm and what the evidence looks like, and it's far too early. We have time for one more question. And um, yes, the gentleman with the bow tie. Uh, David Frost, uh, no relevant affiliation. Uh, and to go back to the census case, in the case as described, uh, a person took an action that was on its face lawful but had naughty thoughts at the time and it was struck down for that. And what I was wondering is a practical matter. Is, is there ever a way to go back and, and you know, atone for one's naughty thoughts and therefore reinstitute the action that was, again, on its face lawful? Or is this sort of forever off the table now? So it was a really interesting question uh, after the case was remanded to the agency, which was the, the consequence of the court's decision. In other words, let's say the agency had logistically the ability to uh, continue with the question, that, that is the citizenship question, what, what did it have to do? In other words, it, it had already provided what the court held was a um, reasonable rationale for adopting the citizenship question. And so would the secretary have to sign a note saying, I really mean it? Um, uh, you know, I've thought uh, about a number of the different possibilities here in this voting rights thing, like maybe I was a little bit loose about it before, but, you know, honestly, it seems like a pretty good idea to me at this point, having read all this expert analysis that was prepared by Department of Justice, and the Department of Commerce, and, you know, so on and so on. The amicus briefs in the case, there was a lot of briefing explaining what a great idea it was. Maybe he found it very persuasive. Um, I don't really know. Um, I, I don't think there's really a lot of precedent here to go on. It happens all the time that agency actions are struck down for insufficient rationale, uh, or in some cases that they're struck down for bad rationales. In other words, maybe there could be a hidden motive that's discriminatory or something like that, and the agency has to clean it up. But what, what happens when you have a permissible, a, a permissible rationale, and the court still says, well, that wasn't good enough? I don't know what the agency does on remand, and apparently Department of Justice and the Department of Commerce couldn't figure it out either. Before thanking our panel, I wanted to remind you of the ground rules for our 15-minute break that's coming up here. Uh, refreshments are available in the Winter Garden. Uh, walk straight out there. For restrooms, there is one just to the left of the elevators here. And you can also go down to the lower level, uh, follow the spiral staircase down, and then take a sharp left when you get to the bottom of it. Um, so please join me in thanking our splendid panel. Thank you.